This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 36, covering Uprising 2012 from the Flyer Slick Skate Club in Voorhees, New Jersey, on November 3rd, 2012. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network, or you can find us on our own dedicated podcast feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can find us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to the show, you just click the link in the show notes. I'll take you to our Red Circle website. You just click the link in the show notes and you can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but be certainly appreciated. I'm one of your hosts. It's real pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined as always by my friend co-host, Case Slow. In case, we are... This was a weird show. Well, like this Uprising show, I ended up liking it, but I didn't end up liking it as much as I ended up liking the, the show they had the night previous in Everett. Yeah, this is just a weird weekend. This is very much... Like, I think the Midwest double shot that we covered the last few weeks, that was an actively bad promotion. These three shows, just because I know a little bit of what's coming up the next night, Dragon USA during this weekend is very much just a promotion that exists. Yeah, yeah. And then this this show very much felt like the peak version of that. So for this week, we're going to review the show. But Case, I know that... There's a lot that's happened between July and November in Dragon Gate. We were talking a little bit about this on air, about just how many shows were happening at this time, and it seemed like that they were having big things happening each month. So let's take a look at what was going on in the mother promotion in Dragon Gate Japan in the summer and fall of 2012. Yeah, we got a bunch of shows to get through, but ultimately these will all pertain to Dragon Gate USA either in the present or in the future. So I, I think they're important to go over. And we start, we're in a post-Kobe World Universe after Shima Pintozawa at World 2012. We now transition into the Summer Adventure Tag League of 2012. And this year, it was a trios tournament with the A Block featuring Masaki Mochizuki, Don Fuji, and Dragon Kid, Ryo Saito, Genki Horiguchi, and Naoki Tanizaki, uh, Akira Tozawa, BB Hulk, and fake Naoki Tanizaki, representing Mad Blanky. The Windows team of Kanichiro Rai and Super Shisa and Sachi Hoko Boy. And then in the B block, the South Osaka strongest trio, Shima Gamma and Magnitude Kishiwada. A Jimmy's trio of Susumu, Kagatora, and Kanda. Team Salty Dog of Mondai Ryo and KZ and Cyber Kong. And then finally, Shingo Takagi, Yamato, and Super Shenlong. And Mike, we kick off on the August 2nd Cork and Hall show, the Summer Adventure Tag League show, where in the opener, Shima Gamma and Kishiwada beat 
Cyber Kong, KZ, and Mondai Ryu. We had an open the Awari Gate title match with Kanichiro Rai defeating and winning the title uh, from Stalker Ichikawa. Jimmy Kagatora defeating Dragon Kid in a singles match. Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki beating Kanda and Susumu in a nice little M2K style match with Don Fuji. The Mad Blanky trio of Hulk Tozawa and Fake Naoki beat the Jimmy's trio of Genki Horiguchi, Ryo Saito, and Real Naoki. And then your main event, an open the Twin Gate title match and number one contender for the Dream Gate belt, Shingo and Yamato beat Yoshino and Doi. When Yamato pins Masao to Yoshino by scoring that pinfall, Yamato earned the next shot at Shima's open the Dream Gate belt. The match was going to take place in Oda Ward City, Oda Ward City Gymnasium on September 23rd, but Yamato said that was too far away and he demanded that the Dreamgate match happen at the second Corican Hall show in August, on August 22nd, and that match was signed for then. Mike, do you have any strong memories of the Summer Adventure Tag League from this year? I mean, the big thing about the Summer Adventure Tag League was this was the trio's year. Blinky Yellow is the Hulk and Akira and Apostor Naoki team, and they kind of Ran through the tournament, though. There's always a place in my heart for the South Osaka strongest trio of Osaka Zenroke, of Gamma, and Shima, and my main main Magdu Kishiwada. But it was just kind of there. It was nice that they had the trio's concept for it. But, like, it, it's something that you look at this tournament, just, like, looking at the blocks and how things were. Like, this was going to be Mad Blanky's year. Like, they set it up that they would have to win this, and they did. Yeah, I would like to see them return to this concept. I think it would be a lot of fun. And, and you mentioned the two teams that ended up in the finals of this tournament on August 19th in Fukuoka Hakata Star Lanes, where the blanky yellow team, Tozawa Hulk and Tanizaki, beat Shima, Gamma, and Magnitude Kishiwada with the win. They not only won the Summer Adventure Tag League, but they won the vacant Open the Triangle Gate belt. And it should be noted, Mike, in this main event, fake Naoki Tanizaki, the man that would later be known as T-Hawk, pinned Shima in this match. After the match, Tanizaki mocked Shima. He called out anyone to challenge the Mad Blanky trio for their newly won titles. Mochizuki put him in his place, calling him a small fish, but he conceded that even in, res in wrestling, even bit players get to the main event sometime. The veteran army wanted a rematch with the ever-energetic Don Fuji joining up with Shima and Mochi. Tanizaki accepted, but Mochi Mochizuki basically told him it was time for the grown-ups to finish out the show, so he should leave, and then Shima thanked the crowd. So, uh, just a, a funny way of uh, looking at the past here with uh, Shima running off youngsters in the main event. Uh, it was a frequent occurrence with T-Hawk in particular, but look at them now. And Mike, that led us to the August 22nd Cork and Hall show, the second Cork and Hall of the month. I'll read you the full card real quick with Mochi Fuji going over Shingo and Super Shenlong in the opener. Gamma defeating Mondai Ryu. Masao Yoshino and Naruki Doi defeating Jimmy Susumu and Kenichiro Rai. An open the Brave Gate number one contendership four-way dance where Dragon Kid, Jimmy Kagator, and KZ fell to Masamune. And then closing out the show, an eight-man tag team best two out of three falls match with the Jimmy's trio or the Jimmy, Jimmy's quartet rather of Horiguchi, Kanda, Tanazaki, and Saito defeating the Mad Blanky trio two to one, uh, or I guess a quartet again two to one. Tozawa, Hulk, Cyber Kong, and the fake Naoki Tanazaki Dreamgate match. Shima beats Yamato in 24 minutes, and then after that, a four-way dance for the number one contendership of the Dreamgate belt with Doi, 
beating Kanda, Arai, and fake Naoki Tanizaki. Mike, the other thing I'll mention about this show before I kick it to you, before the Speed Muscle match, Masato Yoshino introduced the new World 1 international assistant. It is none other than that of Daichi Hashimoto of Zero One. I completely forgot that Daichi was, <laughs> was <laughs> fucking Daichi Hashimoto. It was new man. information when I read it. I'd like to thank the iHeartDG archives for enlightening me on something that I did not know. Thanks, Jay. We appreciate it. Holy shit, I forgot about Daichi being an assistant. That did not last long. Uh, it, it's such a weird Corkin, you know, the idea that the Dreamgate, whenever they defended it, was not the main event, and instead... You were starting to pair off there with like the next ones. And then, you know, having a two out of three falls uh, Atomico's match, it's just like a wild one. But you also like look at it and there's no foreigners there. So it kind of was like kind of setting the stage for what would be the next few foreign tours that would be coming up in September and October. So it made sense, but just kind of a weird show. And I don't remember a single thing about Yamato versus Shima at all. I have not seen that match. I would really like to at some point, but like we've mentioned before, 2012, it's just real hit or miss on what was out there when footage was abundant, and now that it's a little bit harder to find stuff, I I have not seen anything from this show. I've also not seen anything from the September 1st Osaka number 2 show, where the main event was the Triangle Gate match with Tozawa, Hulk, and Fake Naoki beating Shima, Mochizuki, and Fuji to retain the Triangle Gate Championship belts. It should be noted during the opening MC uh, promo that the Veteran Army did, Gamma said that he would be bringing a new unit assistant to Kyoto next week. They will be Osaka-related, but they will not be Magnitude Kishiwada. And then after the main event, Naoki Tanazaki interfered going after the fake Naoki Tanazaki. They brawled again after the match ended. Uh, the real Tanizaki challenged uh, fake Tanizaki for the Triangle Gate belt, but if the Jimmys lose, the real Tanizaki will lose his name. If they win, real t- real Tanizaki will still take a Jimmy's name, but it will be one of his own choosing. And then I will lump this in with the show the next week, the KBS Hall Show, where the new veteran army assistant was none other than Hubbo. And he was introduced to the uh, by the veteran army, the former Okinawa Pro and Osaka Pro wrestler. Shima berated Gamma for making the poor fellow fly from Okinawa all the way to Kyoto, then asked if he was really a veteran. Gamma confirmed his 13 years of service. Shima confirmed that going forward, Hubbo would be joining them for events in the Kansai area. And, uh, Mike, I'm all for a little bit of Hubbo action. Yeah, this is uh, Gamma with him and Masamune pulling up his old Osaka Pro connections. And Habu was great. I lo- Whenever I still see Habu pop up on shows, I'm like, hell yeah, Habu. Like, he's, like, one of my favorite dudes with, like, with, like, Matu Kishiwada that didn't have, like, full-time stints in Dragon Gate. But whenever they pop up and it, it's something that I see Habu on a show, I'm like, all right, hell yeah, hell yeah. And, of course, like, we're now getting into one of the Internet's favorite feuds of 2012 and 2013. We're getting to the, the Aquatic Twins storyline with Imposter Naoki versus Real Naoki, which is a wild ride. Yeah, it makes the notes super hard to read. I don't like it for that reason alone, but it is a feud that I look back very fondly of. I will say Hubbo is someone that if he makes tape, I make an active effort to watch it. Him and Billy Kin Kid, if, if their matches air... I'm going to try to watch them. I, I would welcome Hubbo back into the into Dragon Gate currently. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, just imagine a team of Habu and Shuji Kondo going for the Twin Gates. That that, that would roll. That would roll. Like, bring back Habu, bring back Matu Kishiwada. Like, let's let's bring back a new version of the South South Osaka Strongest Trio. Like, just pass them with Gamma. That gives them something to do. We unfortunately don't get any Hubbo on the September 14th, 2012 Cork and Hall show, but we do get a six-unit Warfare one-night tag team tournament. The opening round matches Windows of Kenichiro Rai and Super Shisa, defeating the Akatsuki uh, duo of Chihiro Tamanaga and Super Shenlong, Mad Blanky, BB Hulk, and Fake Naoki Tanazaki, beating the Jimmys, Jimmy Kanda and real Naoki Tanazaki, and World 1 International, Doi and Yoshi, beating the team veteran return Shima and Dragon Kid team. That was the fourth match on the show, Speed Muscle versus CK1. Not bad. And then before we got to the finals, there was a Falls Count Anywhere match between Don Fuji and Yamato, that Fuji won, and a singles match between Shingo Takagi and Masaki Mochizuki, in which Mochizuki won by countout in 15.02, all before the main event where the Mad Blanky team of Hulk and Fake Naoki beat Speed Muscle and Arakin in Shisa to win the one-night tournament. Mike, I don't remember anything about the unit warfare on this show, but Shingo versus Mochizuki, as you would expect, is just a, a brilliant match. I, I mean, I this would have made tape, but I don't remember. Like This is like the bad thing, because this is stuff that I watched and I did not save, and I wish I did, because this is a lot of stuff that I find very, very interesting, especially like... The Arkin being in, getting multiple matches there. The uh, Speed Muscle versus Hulk and Apostle Naoki stuff. Like, there's a lot of stuff to, that is pretty interesting. Yeah, the Shingo versus Mochizuki match ends in countout because they're they're beating each other up and trying to knock each other out on the floor, and Mochizuki just doesn't get in the ring fast enough. But it is it is more violent and more hard hitting than their 2015 match. Like, Mochizuki throws some kicks in this 2012 Corkin match that I I don't know how Shingo walked away from it. I mean, he's throwing just kicks that Anderson Silva would be proud of. It's really an impressive contest, one that I, I hope we can track down, because if you don't remember it, it I, would, I would like you to see it again. It's uh, just a special match. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's... Something that whenever those two guys got in the ring together, they had a lot of instant chemistry and they always did interesting things. So having a count out that was basically who can kick each other's ass hardest is definitely my speed. Dangerous Gate 2012, September 23rd, Oda City Gymnasium. I'll run down this full card here. We had Kenichiro, Rai Kotoka, Chihiro Tamanaga, and Jimmy Kondo beating Kness, Super Shisa, Shisa Boy, and Super Shenlong in the opener. Gamma, Hubbo, and uh, Stalker Ichikawa beat Cyber Kong, KZ, and Mondai Ryu in a scramble bunkhouse whip match. I'm sure that was just awful. Open the Brave Gate title match, one that I'm sure wasn't much better. Dragon Kid defeats Masamune. And then the tag match that I know Mike and I were thrilled about when it was uploaded to the Dragon Gate Network. Daichi Hashimoto and Masada Yoshino defeat Jimmy Kagatora and Jimmy Susumu. The Triangle Gate match with the Naoki Tanazaki naming rights on the line. The Mad Blanky Trio won, and they would change Naoki Tanazaki's name. More on that in just a minute. Fuji and Mochizuki win the Twin Gate belts from Shingo and Yamato. And the main event, Shima defeats Naruki Doi. 
Tanizaki, after his win, fake Naoki Tanizaki, said that the win proved once and for all who the true Naoki was. He taunted the Jimmy's member who was naturally upset and crying. Real Naoki accepted the loss and was fine with continuing on as Jimmy Tanizaki. However, the win gave fake Naoki the right to pick his new in-ring name. He wasn't going to let him off that easy. Tanizaki and his crying reminds him of a dolphin. Then he thought of the sound that the dolphin makes when it cries. It sounds like QQ. So Tanizaki, therefore, will be known as Mr. QQ Tanoki Dolphin, which Tanoki is where Naoki Tanizaki is from. So, Mike, we get the birth of Mr. QQ Tanoki Dolphin. And then after the match, after the main event, rather, a mad blankie attacks Shima. Fake Naoki hit Shima with a night ride, or was going to, but it got blocked by Masaki Mochizuki. Tanizaki asked for a title match, but Shima flat out refused. No title shots without first winning a Shima Royale. Taki insisted Shima was ducking him, because uh, he was the man that pinned Shima, Fuji, Mochizuki, and Yoshino in the last few weeks, and he wasn't going to let him out of fighting him. Shima accepted a singles match for the next Cork and Hall show. Tanizaki added his own rules to it since the title would not be on the line. So October 12th, was set uh, in Cork and Hall, Shima versus fake Naoki Tanizaki in a lumberjack match. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's the main event of that show is great. Like, Doi, because of them doing muscular bomb tees, is, was fantastic there. A lot of the rest of the show, I mean, the, the Triangle Gate was strong there, and then Mochi Fuji winning the Twin Gate. Like, the top three matches were solid on the show. It's just, you look at the cards at this time, and you're like, Oh, Masamune is challenging for the Brave Gate. We have a bunkhouse rules match here. Daichi's here. Not, you know, like there's a reason why everyone's like, oh, 2012 is kind of a rough year, and this show is a good example of it. Yeah, the Masamune stuff is indefensible, but that's that. I'll I'll look past it. Uh, September 30th, Kobe Sambo Hall. There was a Shima Royale to determine the next Dreamgate contender. And there were seven men in the match. Ryo Saito, Cyber Kong, Naoki Tanizaki, Shingo Takagi, Mondai Ryu, Masao Yoshino, and Mr. QQ, Taoki, uh, Tanoki Dolphin. It's been so long since I've had to say that name. It's out of my system now. And the match ended when Yoshino ended up beating the fake Naoki to earn a Dreamgate shot. Before the Shima Royale started, Dragon Kid discussed the next Bravegate challenger. He had a brave person in mind. This called out Eita Kobayashi returning from his stay in Mexico. Eita quickly asked who this Kobayashi person was. He was simply Eita, the Mexican luchador. He was just in the country to renew his passport, and then he would be returning to Mexico, where he made many wonderful friends. And isn't that true? And then, uh, yeah, we had... Shima and Yoshino confirm their match for the Gate of Destiny, and it should also be noted, Mike, this show took place during a typhoon, and they still made it out there, they still put on a show, and then, boy, if there was ever a show, the October 7th Hakata Star Lane show, which is notable for the final two matches, the Open the Freedom Gate match, with Johnny Gargano back in Japan defending the belt against Ryo Saito, and the Open the United Gate match, AR Fox and Shima defending the belts against Speed Muscle, Mike, have you seen these matches? Because I have not. I haven't. I think this is actually one like the true, like, pro of drought hit was at this time. Like, I remember this happening. I remember listening to the I Heart DG podcast at the time, of which, like, the big notable thing about these tours were that they put uh, Johnny Gargano in World One International because he wears he wears pink, and they thought <laughs> Air Fox should join Team Veterans Returns because he kind of looks old. 
Yeah, I guess we should talk about their tour real quick. It did not work out. They they liked AR Fox. AR Fox did not like Japan. Not even my, my understanding of it is not even uh, the marijuana stuff. It was that AR Fox was annoyed that he was a top guy on the indies, but Drangate would put him in opening matches, and he felt disrespected with the way he was booked. Johnny Gargano did not work because Johnny Gargano just would not work in Drangate, and it became very apparent when he was on this tour that, hey, this doesn't look right. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things that we're at the point of DGUSA where it's not going to be the primary focus of international expansion now. Now we're going to talk by the end of the show about how Mexico became the big port of call for whenever they were talking about bringing in Gaijin and talking about where they send people on excursion. I mean, Ada kind of like as soon as Ada goes to Mexico, not DGUSA, that's the beginning of that. Yeah, that is that is good analysis. So that is something I had not thought about. Two more shows to get through the October 12th Cork and Hall show. I will read you the stuff that matters from this show. One, there's a Genki Horiguchi versus Naruki Doi singles match, a rare pairing there. I would like to track that down. And then the final three matches, World One International, Johnny Gargano and Masato Yoshino defeat AR Fox and Dragon Kid. Semi-main event, Jimmy Konda, Susumu, and Saito defeat Don Fuji, Gamma, and Mochizuki. In your main event, this was turned into a no-ropes lumberjack match, and Shima defeated Naoki Tanazaki. And then, Mike, let's just talk about Gate of Destiny while we're in this ballpark. I'll run down this full card for you. This was October 21st, 2012. This show is on the Dragon Gate Network. It begins with AR Fox, Super Shisa, and Sachi Hoko Boy defeating Jimmy Kagatora, Kotoka, and Super Shenlong. Kenichiro Rai defends the Open the Awari Gate belt against Sakuri Chikawa. Horiguchi, uh, Mr. Dolphin, if you will, and Ryo Saito defeat Cyber Kong, Keizi, and Mondai Ryu. Dragon Kid defends the Brave Gate belt against Eita. The Triangle Gate belts change hands as Gamma, Hubbo, and Magnitude Kishiwada beat Tozawa, Hulk, and Fake Naoki Tanazaki. Shingo and Yamato defeat Johnny Gargano and Naruki Doi in a truly bizarre match. Don Fuji and Masaki Mochizuki defend the belts against Kanda and Susumu. In your main event, Shima defends the Dreamgate belt against Masato Yoshino. Yeah, this is uh, just... Uh, I know we t- we've talked about this Gate Destiny show in the past, but it's just like such a wild show. Just like looking at how things were positioned and how very quickly everything will change with how the hierarchy would be. Like, you look at Gate of Destiny 2013 and you compare it to this one and it feels so different. Yeah, this whole show was weird. That Gargano and Doi versus Shingo and Yamato match is so heatless. It's just, it's just a weird, almost uncomfortable match to watch. Not because the match is bad. It's actually a pretty good match, but Gargano was just not over and it's hard to watch at times but yeah this is a really good show and uh i i need to go back and watch that triangle game match i don't remember a ton of that but gamma hubbo and kishiwada against tozawa hulk and fake naoki that is up my alley i i mean i just talked about wanting to have uh south of Saka's strongest trio reunite and they're former triangle gate champions guys like i forgot they were former triangle gate champions we got to have this to happen now it would it would have been an interesting situation had the generational warfare been going on and then gamma had decided to uh bring an osaka pro contingent into the mix as like this undercard team with kishiwada and hubbo and whoever else i would have really enjoyed that i wish they would have gone in that route 
bring in Billy King Kid, you know, I mean, Tiger's match, Moriyama can go fuck off. But, you know, uh, I, I just think that there's a lot of stuff to do for it. Maybe Ultimate Spider J dig up whatever uh, pit uh, Shima's doing another show in and have him there. You know what I mean? Like, the, 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 there could have been something about the windows of the 2020 unit w- or Generation War being the South Osaka's strongest trio. I think that I think there's some legs there, case. I was recently chastised by Chad Campbell, Big Boys Play WCW on Twitter for not watching enough Osaka Pro. So uh, maybe that's maybe that's what we do. That Osaka Pro's Dragon System adjacent. Maybe we do a little bit of Osaka Pro coverage once we're done with Dragon Gate USA. Who knows? All I know is that we're done with the timeline stuff. We rushed through that for a multitude of reasons, and now we are ready for Uprising 2012. Yeah, so let's get into the show itself. This, again, was from the Flyer Skate Zone in Voorhees, New Jersey, a traditional home of CZW. It is Uprising 2012. It is from November 3rd, 2012. We open up with seeing a long-lost friend. But before we do that, dark matches, Latin Dragon defeated Gary J. You know, the Sif Robo Ginger, of course, Gary J. ACH defeated Ata, and I don't think this ever made tape anywhere. Because I like, is, I try to see. Um, it is a bonus match on the DVD copy, which neither of us have. Oh well, there we go. Yes, Man, because uh, Sean Cedor, Voices of Wrestling contributor, has it reviewed on his blog, but I have never seen the matches. I do not own this DVD. Yeah, yeah. And then we get into it. We get to see one of our long lost friends in the opener. It is a tag team match. The DUF of Eric Cannon and Pinky Sanchez. They we get to see Jigsaw. Jigsaw is back as he teams with Fire Ant. Technically, they are still attributed to as as Chikara Sekigun. Jigsaw got the win for Chikara over Sanchez with a strong zero in 11 minutes and 32 seconds. And this was just like a really fun match. Like this was the the kind of matches that I would hope they would open a lot of these shows. And maybe it is that they're in the Northeast so they can say, hey, guys, uh, you're, you're around Pennsylvania. Come down to New Jersey and do the show. But I miss Jigsaw a lot. And when seeing him on the show, I was like, hell yeah, this ruled. Mike, I loved this match on so many levels. First of all, you got to remember Jigsaw in 2012. He worked low-key on one of the Evolve shows earlier in the year. Now, he was not a serious striker, so low-key had some issues there, but we got past it. And then he was also coming off of a very brief run in TNA at this point as Rubik's. Yes. Rubik's, yeah. And look, TNA has made a lot of bad decisions over the years. I think that's fair to say. Low on the list is not signing Jigsaw when they had a chance, but it is still a bad decision because he would have fit right in with the company at that time. I Look, I love 2012 TNA, and Jigsaw Rubik's would have been a really phenomenal addition to that roster, and I think it's a real bummer that he never got picked up there and has never been picked up by a major company, which is insane, especially after watching this match. And, I, Mike, you're a little bit more connected to the indie scene right now in the U.S. than I am, because I I watch AAW, and then everything else has to be a real strong recommendation for me to check it out. But it just seems like this match is absent from the indies right now. Four guys that are all competent, and I I will say, Piki Sanchez, did I need Fire Ant kicking out, or did I need Fire Ant hitting a burning hammer on Pinky Sanchez in this match, or rather, I think I no Pinky Hammer, P- Pinky Hammer, Pinky Sanchez had a burning hammer on Fire Ant in this match, and Fire Ant kicked out. Do I need that in an opening match? No, I do not. That was probably a little bit too much, but everybody was competent at worst in this match, and it was just fast-paced tag team wrestling 
in a way that, like, I just don't feel like the Indies has this type of match anymore. Am I wrong? No, and I think that's something that we'll be a couple of years from seeing, even out of COVID, because as of the day we're recording, it was announced that Top Flight was signed and by AEW, and Top Flight would have been that team that over the next few years could be counted on having the fast-paced match. And then you have, like, four guys here that, I mean, they have significant history for a lot of their career working together in Chikara, so you had a familiarity that's just... There's just not going to be that kind of familiarity coming out of COVID. And I think that's something that's not really talked about is that people aren't having constant matches against the same people and are gelling. Because this was like an 11-minute sprint where they all just kind of went all for it. I mean, as you mentioned, Pinky Sanchez had a burning hammer in it. And there was a lot of, like, chemistry. They could tell that these are guys who are so familiar with each other. And I think that that's something that will we'll end up being not only is it missed right now in 2020, but we're going to miss this kind of stuff, I feel like, for the next few years. They ended up coming back as a team a year from now. They worked the final shows of 2013 together, but I don't know how you watch this match and not immediately want Fire Ant and Jigsaw as a part of your tag team division. In a, in a division with the Super Smash Brothers, with the DUF, with the scene to an extent, Shima and AR Fox and Ricochet and Rich Swan. I think Fire and Jigsaw would have done wonders to this tag team division. I went three and a half on this match. I, I I just I loved what this opener represented because I don't feel like it's anywhere in wrestling right now. Yeah, I went three and a half on this, and I went three and a half on the next match. But before we get to that, the scene beat down DUF afterwards. Marty Bell made a save and just kind of just scared them away by her presence. Uh, then we went backstage. Rich Swan's very excited about facing Super Smash Brothers tonight, but he's more looking ahead to tomorrow, where he gets to face Chuck Taylor, and he wants it to be a no-DQ match. We had a Heat preview, which was one of the more like obnoxious videos that they've ever done. It's finally out on DVD. That show happened in March of 2012. Yes, that is, that is something to note, that at this point, I think you would have been able to buy the WrestleMania weekend shows at the Dragon USA merch table at this show, but not the Midwest double shot that happened in July, and these shows are happening in November. Right, yeah, like, and, and that's going to be something in 2013 we'll really get into about their DVD product and how that goes away. But then we have another match that I ended up really enjoying. It was Samurai Del Sol versus Akira Tozawa. Akira Tozawa got the win with the capture German suplex in 12 minutes and 24 seconds. I went three and a half stars on this. I thought that this was just a really solid singles match that I felt like that— uh, it's something that, like, you watch this match and you see Samurai really progressing. Like, that's the interesting thing is going from Heat, speaking of Heat, to uh, Uprising just over a period of eight months. He looks so much more comfortable in here. In here. And I mean, this is, was like another test I feel like that he really succeeded in. And, and of course, Tozawa's great because he's secured Tozawa. So I, I really enjoyed this. Four and a quarter stars, Mike. Wow. That's wow. what I gave this match. Mike, I was shocked, shocked when I saw that this match went 12 minutes long. I thought this match was like seven minutes because the pace that Tozawa and Samurai Del Sol work at is unbelievable. I mean, it is like a G1 sprint up in this Drangit USA show, and Tozawa and Del Sol execute this style to perfection. Akira Tozawa nearly kills Samurai Del Sol with an apron German suplex. Del Sol, after not really landing it the first few times he tried it, he perfectly executes that springboard poison Rana he had been doing. I, I This is just... This is what Dragon USA is. 
I mean, this is the promotion right here. It's the heart and soul, and it's why Samurai Del Sol was, in a sense, so protected by Gabe. And once Gabe got his hands on this guy, he had to sign him to a contract. He had to be flown into shows. He was paid more than any other guy on these shows, any other American. And it makes sense because Del Sol is the one thing right now for as good as A.R. Fox is, and I'll talk about A.R. Fox later on in the show, and for as competent as Gargano has been as champion, Del Sol has the life and the energy. And I want to go back to a conversation that we had a few weeks ago where I asked, you know, do you think his just catastrophic debut against Masato Yoshino, where it looked like he injured Yoshino in the match, if that perhaps prevented him from getting to Japan? But seeing as, seeing as how we just talked about all of this stuff that was going on in Japan at the time with Johnny Gargano and AR Fox being over there, Mad Blanky, Akatsuki, Team Veterans, all of all of the units that were happening. Where do you think Samurai Del Sol would have fit in had he gone to Japan in, say, August to November of 2012? I think he would have been put into World 1 International. I think he would have been a guy that they would probably have him versus Dragon Kid for Brave Gate Shot eventually. But I think, like, really, the long-term plan with him would have been him in Millennials as kind of the star gaijin before Fumita really took off. Yeah, that, like, is a, I feel like... that is a super good realization that I had not thought of. I thought maybe Akatsuki, just because of the color scheme more than anything, but also, can you imagine getting, like, Shingo Yamato Samurai Del Sol trios matches? Like, that just sounds terrific. I mean, Shingo could probably just... Just do like the Roderick Strong Jack Evans, like skipping a generation move by himself, like just like throw him. It's like you don't need to, you don't even, you don't even need to work on this, Samurai. I've got you. I could do both flips and torque in this move. Yeah, I think the offense of a Shingo Samurai Del Sol tag team is Shingo drops back to pass on first down and flings Del Sol at his opponent. I think it is, <laughs> it is like watching Justin Herbert drop back to pass and then hit Keenan Allen. But ah, we're not gonna get into the LA Chargers right now. But what a fun team to watch. And I think the LA Chargers are essentially what Del Sol and Shingo would have been. As a former Chargers fan, I'm not going to be synced back into the NFL case. I went through a lot of bad Chargers years because I only watched the Chargers because I saw Lodini and Tomlinson both play in high school and in college in person. And I was like, this guy is the most incredible football player ever <laughs> I ever saw. Then I became a Chargers fan. And that was not a fun time to be a Chargers fan. There were a lot of wins, but there were a lot of just like, what was his name? Nate Kading fucked me over so much on those Chargers names. <laughs> I, I can't cheer for the Chargers because I'm already in a weird spot where I'm from Indiana, but I, I am a Dodgers fan and a hardcore Rams fan. So I'm appropriating Los Angeles culture in general. It makes people uncomfortable. I get questioned about it all the time. I don't know what to tell you. I was raised a Dodgers fan, and when the Rams moved to LA, I was like, that's my new team. That's who I want to cheer for. So I can't take more Los Angeles culture from them and add it onto my life. But every single week I throw on Sunday ticket and I am giddy to watch Justin Herbert march down the field with ease for three quarters and then throw it away in the fourth. There has not been a more entertaining football team to watch in the 2020 season than the LA Chargers. I love them to death. I wish them all the success, and I know they will finish 9-7 and seven and lose in the wild card round every year for the next six years. And that's why I'm not getting back into it, because I live I, I live that. That is my history I've lived through. That's lived history. I mean, go be an LA Galaxy fan. You could claim that, not really claim more LA Valor. 
I mean, the, it's the MLS. Thing is, I like the uh, story of Atlanta FC so much where they just showed up and Atlanta, who nationally is known for having lethargic fans that don't really like showing up to anything. They were like, we love soccer now. And then they won a title. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, good for this city. Good for these guys. And so it's like, that's that's purely, uh, I, I hate I hate the term, but that would purely be a, a bandwagon team to, to root for. But Mike, I got to be honest, I'm not spending a ton of time watching the MLS right now. I mean, I don't either, and I'm a Timbers fan, so I don't blame you there. Then, after this great match, we get into what we, you said we were like, this is what DGUSA should be, this is DGUSA. Then we get to what DGUSA is, as we have a Davis and Gargano video hyping up their Anything Goes match. Still left me very confused about John Davis being a heel. And then we had the Anything Goes match, John Davis versus John Gargano. Um I'm just going to run down what happened, Case, and then uh, we'll get our thoughts because there's a lot of stuff that happens here. Is that okay? Yeah, please. So Davis comes out and stares at people, stares at all the people there. I, I don't know if Kevin Hare got stared at, but he had a pretty good shot this night. And he grabbed a microphone, and he said that Johnny Gargano should concede and vacate the title because of what happened the night previous in Everett. And then Gargano hits the ring. They brawl around the ring for about three minutes, and basically, John Davis destroys Johnny Gargano's back. He eventually rolls him into the ring, and then they ring the bell. He hits three lariats and pins Johnny Gargano clean in under a minute. Arda Ocal and Bryce Rumsberg, who were on the call, were freaking out about it. Then afterwards, Davis rolls to the outside. He very slowly puts up a table. The referees bring him in the back, so John Davis is there kind of standing and waiting. And then Davis walks to the back. Gargano blindsides him, and they start brawling, and they're, they're all kind of like really beat up. And then eventually Johnny Gargano super kicks Davis off the apron through the table. And that's what happened here. I hated this immensely. This sucked. It's a horrific segment, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why. John Davis does the staring thing. We'll talk about it more next week because I think what happens next week is far more offensive when it comes to the staring gimmick. He cuts this promo about how Gargano needs to give up the belt, and Ardo, Cal, and Bryce Remsburg, who's on the call, are talking about how, you know, we don't even think Gargano's in the building. He's too hurt to compete tonight. And then as soon as John Davis finishes cutting this promo, Gargano's music hits instantly. And I know as wrestling fans, we just accept the um, the absurdity of theme music. But maybe wait just a minute to have Gargano's theme hits, uh, for ha- to have Gargano's music hit after John Davis said he's not in the building. So that was flaw number one. Now, the squash match, non-title, I did not hate. Had Davis just beaten Gargano up and left, everything would have been fine. I I think it would have helped John Davis. I It would have been a segment where you go, Gabe, all right. But... I think it would have helped John Davis in the long run. So Davis hits the three clotheslines and pins Gargano. Gargano's laying in the ring. John Davis goes to set up a table on the outside. And Mike, I don't know if you noticed this, but two referees come out and they essentially try to sneak Johnny Gargano to the back. Right, yeah. Yeah, like mm. not to make too much noise, not to not so John Davis hears us. Let's sneak this man to the back. And even had that happened, it would have been goofy. Had John Davis turned around and gone, oh shit, where'd he go? But I would have been okay with it. 
But, and now we have to take into context the Evolve show that they ran in this same building a month prior where Davis turned heel and hit the border toss through the table on Gargano. And they showed that in the in the video leading up to this. So, so we were familiar with the feud going on. So John Davis had already decimated Gargano once in this exact building in front of likely these same exact fans. My issue with this segment overall is Johnny Gargano's comeback. Now... The dive he did through the entrance ramp onto John Davis, or through the entryway, rather, onto John Davis, was super cool. And I can't take that away from Gargano. It looked awesome. It was filmed really well. Good for him. But it should have never happened. John Davis needed to be standing tall against Johnny Gargano on this night, and there is no reason, there is no reason why John Davis should have ended this segment with him going through a table and not Johnny Gargano. This completely cut out the knees from John Davis. I no longer fear him as a heel. He is now just another guy on the roster, and it is indefensible. This segment, Mike, this segment is the one that damages John Davis because I I did not like the heel turn last week. I don't think it's the best use of his character and his strengths and his talents, but this, this is the segment that killed John Davis. Oh no, absolutely. And this feud will go for a long time. Well, like we'll be still be talking about this feud in a long time. And this feud, I think I can now say with the power of hindsight, this feud completely covered, colored how I felt about John Davis and his company. Cause it just was such a dead feud. And it's a shame because he had, 12 shows that he was one of my favorite guys in this thing. Like, hey, so you were seeing me like get more and more into John Davis. Now I'm reminded, oh, wait, this is completely booked to hell. I don't think this is really John Davis's part. I think this uh, lays at the feet of Gibbs Sapolsky here, booking someone and not understanding, like, one, your Bayface champion not really is in a position to carry the load here. And then you do just this really defeating storyline and this whole thing that even though it had some good peaks and valleys, you come away with this thinking, why should I ever care about John Davis ever again? And you, and I don't now. I don't care about John Davis for the remainder of this series. I, I know he's got, at least from what I remember, one really good match left at him. And then I was, are you familiar with the John Davis versus Chuck Taylor bunkhouse match in Evolve? No, I'm not. But it seems like something up my alley, though, to be fair. Even after I just went a minute saying I don't care about the guy anymore. (laughs) That does seem interesting to me. It's on the Evolve Florida triple shot in the middle of 2013. So we'll talk about this later. But I don't don't even know how I ended up here. All I know is that I was re-watching that match yesterday. And again, I don't know what led me to that point. That match rules. So there's still some in-ring high points for John Davis, but... After this, I think this character can already be written off as dead. Yeah, this is the assassination of established dominance, uh, John Davis by the coward Gabe Sapolsky. That's what this is. I, I try to say that'd be a cute bit, but it there's no way that, as we'll see, there's no way that he establishes any bit of credibility in this promotion. No, and, and I, I will go back to not giving him a featured match in Miami was a huge, huge mistake. And then it just seems like, you know... With the exception of him pinning Yamato, which I honestly did not expect. Tozawa, I get. I, I did not think he would pin Yamato. That was a step in the right direction. But everything in 2012 has just not gone John Davis's way. And that's crazy to think because 
the second to last show of 2011 is him lawn darting Pinky Sanchez from the ring to the entranceway <laughs> of the ECW arena. And what I think is one of the best single spots in Dragon USA history. I love that gift that I made of Davis launching Pinky. And now it's all gone. And a year later and just who cares? Yeah. Then we go backstage. Eric Cannon is mad because the scene beat up Pinky Sanchez. Pinky had to be taken to the hospital, and only the DUF are allowed to beat up Pinky Sanchez. And then we have— Well, let, let, uh, me, let me stop you right there. I, we need to note this now, that the opening match is the final match in the promotion for Pinky Sanchez. And that is not something that I realized until I looked to see if he was working the next night, and that's why he was taken off the show. I, I, I still don't know— I'm assuming it wasn't a legitimate concussion. I I don't know because, it, but he wasn't working anywhere the next night. But then I started looking through his cage match, and he's nowhere to be found in 2013 or 2014. So, this is the end of Pinky Sanchez. And my kind of a broad topic, but real quick, your overall thoughts of Pinky's run in Dragon USA because I do think he is someone that, for better or worse, is associated with this promotion. You know, it was something that. I'm glad that the his time ended with him in that great match in the opener. Like, that might have been one of my favorite performances of his career. Like, com- including Shakar and things like this. Like, and he did provide a certain color to the promotion. Personally, not necessarily my kind of wrestler, but he's he's part of the fabric. And it's one of those things that... And when you told me that this was the last show, I was like, wow, okay. Because Pinky Sanchez is someone that... I remember just being around for a long time, but I didn't realize there was this delineation point coming up here. And, you know, for DUF or how much fun the act was for a long time and then how it just kind of became the Cannon and Sanchez spitting beer fest. I mean, that's a part of the shows. And it's kind of, even though not my favorite wrestler, not my favorite act, you know, it's going to be sad that now for the remainder of the series, no more Pinky Sanchez. Yeah, it's it's weird. If you look at just all of the matches he had, He's not good in a lot of them, but this is a guy who had two different singles matches with Sabu and then three other tag matches featuring Sabu. So he's in the ring with him five different times, and that's a third of his time in Dragon USA. He wrestled 18 matches, and 17 of them were on regular shows. So a lot of it was him and Sabu, and that sucked, and it was a bummer. I think... As a character, he was all right. I I will say uh, the DUF is better off without him, I think. You, you know what it is? The DUF ultimately peaked, and I think it hit this moment where the act was the perfect balance of Callahan being a killer and Cannon and Sanchez doing their goofiness at the Heat main event. When it was those three teaming, it's the... The uh, one of two times where we got a DUF trios match, the other time being the main event of Freedom Fight, when it was those three against AR Fox, John Davis, and Sabu. I think that Heat main event, if that would have been the last show for Pinky Sanchez, we would have said, you know what? The DUF was a lot of fun. And that gimmick, you know, it, it was weird, but it was all right. But after that, unfortunately, there was the John Davis and Sabu versus Cannon and Pinky tag, and then Masada versus Pinky Sanchez, which is simply. Uh, indefensible. So I- I'm not going to miss Pinky, but he did not actively detract from this promotion in a way that I think some people uh, paint him as doing. That's fair. That's entirely fair. And it's just kind of weird now that we know that that's it for someone who, you know, 
it does not feel like that he's been around for that long, but he's basically was around for a third of the promotion and he's done kind of, kind of ignobly like concussion or not. And then it's just no longer a part of it. And I'll be interested to see how they kind of cover for this as we go on. It's a like, I don't know why when I found out this was Pinky's last show, it like registered with me in a way that even BB Hulk's last show or Yamato's last show, like these staples of the promotion, I was like, well, yeah, I guess we don't see them ever again. And then I found out it was Pinky Sanchez's last show. I was like, oh my God, like, that's crazy that we're, I guess, almost done with this project now because Pinky Sanchez is gone. Yeah, yeah, no, like, that's the, that's the overwhelming thing. I was like, oh, wow, we're really at the end now. And that's kind of, like, the overall thought about that. Um, the next match is a tag match. This was Super Smash Brothers versus Ricochet and Rich Swan. Super Smash Brothers got the win with the fatality on Ricochet and 20 minutes and 10 seconds. And I think this is Super Smash Brothers' best match in the promotion. I absolutely love this one. Four and a quarter stars on it. There was a lot of stuff in this match. <laughs> I mean, I like moves, and I'm watching this going like, oh my god, grab a hold. Oh, slow it down. Like, you guys got to do something else, because there were just a lot of moves in this match. Now, I will say this. I think it is 100% the right decision for the Super Smash Brothers to go over, and I'm glad they did that. And I think that Gabe has to get some credit for that. You know, Super Smash Brothers were coming off of an ROH run where nobody knew how to use them. And then, as we talked about last week, and we'll talk about a little bit more next week, Super Smash Brothers were the act on the indies at the time. They were the guys. And Gabe really has rallied around them, and I think he deserves a little bit of credit for that. It's not my favorite match of theirs in the promotion. They've got one coming up that I just I just absolutely adore. I went three and a half on this. Just it was it was really good the entire time, but I never felt like it really touched being great. I mean, when you had stuff like you know how much I like when Vit when Ricochet plays the vet card. He played the vet card starting off in this match. And I thought that was really cool. And he did like the most insane dive over two people onto Uno. Like he did a, it was a space flying tiger drop, but he did it while both Swan and uh, and Superfied were on the apron, like crawling on the apron, and over them, cleared them completely, and landed right onto Uno. It was one of the more insane things I've ever seen. And then I, maybe this is me being a moves head. I liked all the moves, and I liked how they absolutely murdered Ricochet to get the win there. Like it, it looked like an impressive win, and it came off like going like, okay, now Super Smash Brothers are players in this tag team division. You know, I don't know if it's a testament to Ricochet or what it is. We just watched this guy lose a singles match last week. And as I went back through the results, I was like, oh, Ricochet is taking a lot of pins. Like, this guy does not win all that often. But when SSB pinned him, I was like, oh, shit, they pinned Ricochet. That's a really big deal. And it felt really big. And then, unfortunately, Era Fox came out and cut a promo, and I thought he completely stole all of the thunder that the Super Smash Brothers had. Yeah, so Era Fox comes out. He makes fun of Ricochet, talks about how he didn't respect him last night, and says, oh, wait, watch the main event while I'll be teaming with Shima and be retaining my belts. And best Air Fox promo maybe of his career. Like, it was like one minute, and he had all the points, and you still got the feeling of, okay, Air Fox has this guy's goat now. It was well executed. I'm not sure I would call it a good promo, though. Well, I mean, with, with Air Fox, well executed is, like, a great promo for him. It's a sliding scale. I, yes, that's fair. 
And then we get into the next match. It is a trios match. The gentleman club of Chuck Taylor, Drew Gulak, and Orange Cassidy with Colonel Nolan Angus, Dr. Colonel Nolan Angus, and the Swamp Monster defeat Cheech and the scene of Caleb Connolly and Scott Reed with Larry Dallas and Trina Michaels in 15 minutes and 31 seconds when Chuck Taylor hit the awful waffle on Cheech. And man, um, yeah, the scene at this point and everything with Trina just... You know, we talked about this last week. This is kind of the stuff that I was like watching immediately just like checks me out of this match. Like they had Swamp Monster hump, hump Trina in this and it just kind of was jokey and consequential. And, you know, take this match off the show and we're talking about like top 10 DGUSA shows, <laughs> even with the, the, the uh, Gargano and uh, John Davis thing. But I just absolutely detested all this. Like my own my one takeaway is that Cheech kind of looked like a tall low key in his black, orange and white gear. So that's the thing. So Cheech, I, well, first of all, I don't think, with, even if you take this match out, I don't think this is a top 10 Dragon USA show of all time. I'll push back on that right now. Um, it, Cheech looks so good that I understand why Gabe booked him here. Gabe booked him on the Florida Evolve triple shot earlier in the summer. I teamed with Mike Cruz on a lot of those shows, so a, a tag team that I'm obviously all about, my man Mike Cruz. Cheech looked so good from an aesthetic standpoint and then added absolutely nothing in the ring. And it was such a bummer because he came out and I was like, does Gabe book Cheech after this? Like he looks like a million bucks. And then he started wrestling and I was like, oh, that's why he worked eight dark matches for Drangit USA. And then once on the main card, that's right. Not much of a worker. Um, Yeah, the Gentleman's Club stuff, I just don't like, and I like Chuck Taylor and I raved about Drew Gulak last week. I just, I don't need this in Dragon USA. I think it is a clear sign that Gabe is somewhat checked out. The fact that he's allowing this on his shows and, and not the Trina Michael stuff, not the scene stuff, not any of that, but just the fact that the gentleman's club is existing in the way that they are, I think means that Gabe threw his hands up and said, Chuck, do whatever you want. And it's fine. I like Chuck Taylor. I like his style of comedy. Oh, yeah. I love Chuck. Yeah. Chuck's great. So, again, it's not that I don't like Chuck Taylor. I just don't. I, I, I'm not into this era of him in Dragon USA. And Evolve, in Evolve especially. I think Chuck was always an odd fit in Evolve after the first nine shows. I think once the merger happens his stuff really feels off in that promotion. The one thing I will say, the one positive about the Gentleman's Club is, Mike, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the Swamp Monster has done run-ins in both of their matches this weekend, and both times he has done the cartwheel flying kick that Loki yes. does. Yeah, yes. I don't know. I'm assuming that's intentional, and that is really funny if that's the case. I, I mean, like, that is the one positive note of his match is that Swart, it says Swamp Monster had a sweet cartwheel. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know what you went with this. I gave this match one star, and I know that's aggressively harsh, but this just, it's, it's something that followed Evolve, even when they were really hot, is you would have these good shows. Now, I think this is a, a fine to good show. I don't think this show was great, but you would have these these good to great shows in Evolve, and you would just have that one segment. It was just like, oh, God, Gabe, what are you thinking? And... For as bothersome as the John Davis segment was, this one was the one. It just overstated its welcome. This was too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Davis thing, like, there, he was going for something. It just did not work. This was just something for the sake of doing it. And then you have the whole thing afterwards. Marty Bell came out, and her and Trainer Michaels had a cat fight. 
like it was literally called a cat fight and it was acted like a cat fight and I, I don't think I've really said this, but not in my DGUSA, like, and especially watching back in 2020, it's just like, you're like, okay, this is happening. This is the sign of the times here. And it's really something about how there just really was no idea. Like after like the Chuck, Chuck turns heel and then you have the stuff with Ronan, which all makes sense, but everything else about Chuck Taylor makes zero sense in this company. Like post the, post the split of Ronan. No, he needed a, he needed a unit, but it, the Gentleman's Club was not the answer. He needed, like, a new group of young guys. And I just don't think they existed at that point in the indies, and I think that's part of the problem. I mean, literally, it would be like if Chuck Taylor and Mike Cruz formed a unit. Like, I think that's what Chuck needed. But going from this Ronin turn where you have the heated match on the Evolve show in Florida, the heated match in Chicago that we talked about, and then transitioning into hard comedy after that, it's it's a little uncomfortable. It's either Chuck Taylor needed to pivot and go a little bit more serious, or he just needed to go away. And he probably going away was the best option, but Gabe, you know, either had him under contract or didn't want to lose him to Ring of Honor. And it's just a, a fault of the indie scene in a sense, because Chuck Taylor really needed to not be on Drangate USA shows for like six months. Yeah, no, that's entirely fair. And then, then the next, the next thing was a Super Smash Brother promo. They were very Canadian. They're talking about facing the Chikaric team the next night. And hey, I like that. You're building up two teams with having wins. They're facing off the next night. It makes sense. And then whoever comes out of that probably should be the next number one contender for the tag team titles. And I think like that was pretty smart booking. The promo itself, I mean, it's Super Smash Brother doing video game shit and acting super Canadian. Yeah, I know there were times earlier on in this promotion where, like, a Masato Yoshino would cut an English promo and they would still use subtitles on it. And I think the same thing needs to be done for the Super Smash Brothers. These dudes are far too Canadian for my comfort. (laughs) And it's not, like, anything, like, wrong. It's just, like, sometimes... No, no, not that there's anything wrong with that. But, but, awfully Canadian. (laughs) I, I take it you're not a big fan of Strange Brew or Letterkenny. Now, I've heard good things about Letterkenny. I should probably give that a look, but I have not I have not dove in yet. Both me and Lenny Leonard, huge Letterkenny fans. But uh, this you know is, what? Two solid seals of approval. Two men that I actually trust. I, I, I mean, I watch a lot of weird stuff, but if I'm going to find a comedy that people like, I will say, go watch Letterkenny. Everyone, if you have Hulu or the ability to, watch Letterkenny. It's a good time. That's uh, that's and, good to know, and I and I have Hulu, so Mike, you know, or, or might have you know, Christmas around the corner. I might as well enjoy a Canadian Christmas. A Canadian Christmas. I think they're putting a new season out on Boxing Day, so there you go. Uh, then we had the semi-main event. It was best two out of three falls: El Generico versus Sammy Callahan. Sammy Callahan won the match two falls to one. First fall, Sammy won very quick after a cradle exchange. This was noted on Cage Match as fifty as one minute and nineteen seconds. Second fall, El Generico won this one with a one-legged brain buster. That was insane. And then the deciding fall was Sammy tapping him out with the stretch muffler. The entire match was 20 minutes and 36 seconds. And interesting two out of three falls match. Not kind of like flipped the conventions about it on its head. I'm I'm kind of interested in what your thoughts were, both of like this match and like how they worked the two out of three fall stipulation here. I don't have an issue with the way they worked it. I think Sammy Callahan is someone that likes taking gimmick matches like this and making it his own. I know it's a match that 
I know I really liked at the time. I probably wouldn't like it at all now, but like he did an Iron Man match with Adam Cole and PWG that felt really different because it was like nine to eight was the final. They did a whole bunch of falls from, you know, the opening portion of the match onwards. And I, you know, I I don't think I like it now, but at the time I I really enjoyed it. The the issue with this match, this was like an Eddie Kingston match. And I know it's weird to criticize him coming off what he's doing is now the best work of his career. But I, I sat through a lot of bad Eddie Kingston matches that were fundamentally sound where the selling was really, really good. And these strikes were laid in and they looked legitimate, but it wasn't that entertaining to watch. And El Generico, you know, does a one-legged brain buster in this match after Callahan relentlessly works over his leg. That's awesome. That singular spot was great, but I never found this match to be all that engaging, let alone exciting. I guess I really bought into the legwork. So the reason why, uh, Generico did it one leg. It was that after the first fall where Sammy was like, Hey, I got the pinfall exchange. Now I won. He spent the next 15 minutes just destroying El Generico's leg. And I thought that it was pretty compelling stuff there. I do get how it's all proficiently done, but could come across a little cold. I think that's entirely fair. And I think that some of it is, I mean, this again, Hurricane Sandy weekend, and they had about 90 fans and filled up and Voorhees at the uh, skate zone. So you know, I mean, that's understandable here. Maybe if a more hot crowd, there would be more investment there. But, like, they went for it here, and there's a level of respect for that. I mean, right before that second fall, El Generico hits a really gross exploder onto the, the ringside table. That's a plastic table that doesn't break, so Sammy skids off of it. And then he hits, like, like his last big gas was Sammy was going up top, and he hit a running Yakuza kick where he was limping and then, like, gutted it to the Yakuza kick, and then El Generico fell and crumbled, and then Sammy just took a crazy ass over T-Kettle fall to the floor. And I thought like that kind of stuff was like going for it for the six. But I totally understand how this comes across as somewhat of a cold match. This is almost like one of those matches. I feel this way a lot when I watch Eddie Kingston wrestle. And I, I compare, I, I really think a lot of this match is what Kingston did, which is why I draw that comparison. I bet this was a super fun match for Sammy Callahan to wrestle. I bet he loved putting this match together and just enjoyed being in the ring, enjoyed telling the story. If I was a wrestler, I would love to have a match like this. It just doesn't resonate with me at all as the viewer, though, and that that is my issue. The other thing I'll say real quick, you mentioned the attendance. Uh, Voice of Wrestling contributor Kevin Hare was at this show, and he noted to us that he bought a general admission ticket for this show, and if you look on the footage, Kevin Hare is sitting front row, hard cam. Uh, not a lot of people at this show, so he walked in with a general admission ticket and was moved to the front row. So times are tough in Dragon USA. Yeah, yeah, and at least this time I can't say it's because of the booking or the overall economics. I mean, you, you did you're doing a show the weekend after one of the worst uh, uh, meteorological disasters in the Northeast history. So that that happens. The, the other know, thing maybe. I will say about the Flyer Skate Zone, a venue that looks notoriously awful on camera. I mean, I've been turned away or turned off by CZW shows just on the mere appearance of this building. I thought Dragon USA actually made it look all right. Like, I was not bothered by the presentation of what they did here. No, no, no. They had all their lights from Mania Weekend up there. So, like, you had, like, a... It was, like, the weird thing about the uh, German-American club in in Hollywood, Florida, where they had, like, the one wall that was, like, they're all their setup of, like, all the lights and the screens, and then you look at the rest of it. Like, like that was the thing that happened here, and I felt like it looked fine. 
you know, like I totally know what you say about the skate zone. Like it's definitely one of those places you're like, yeah, you are doing a show at a hockey rink. And I didn't feel like it was that bad this time. No, God, just one of those gross venues. I remember Davey Richards showed up there Cage of Death 2013. He had just finally quit Ring of Honor for the last time. So what does Dr. Davey do? Well, he shows up to CZW, and it's him and Chris Dickinson in this match. And it just, like, it's a good match. I remember really liking it. And it just looks horrible in this darkened, awkward flyer skate zone. That's the same show that Drew Gulak and uh, Chris Hero opened up that show. We'll talk about this next year because this pertains directly to Dragon Gate USA. But yeah, God, the skate zone was such a bad venue. Yeah, yeah. And then after the match, we had Sammy on the microphone say he's back after being suspended for five shows. Tonight was just the first step of Sammy becoming a champion in DG USA. Why, we why was the microphone so bad? This is now oh, the point terrible. of Dragon Gate USA. I knew this point was coming eventually, but I don't understand it. Because for the first year of this promotion, every promo could be heard and was was easily, not accessible, but you could understand every word of every promo. I could not understand a word that anybody said on the live mic. I don't, I don't understand why this happened, because it wasn't an issue at the start of the promotion. No, I wonder if... if whoever's uh, sound kit they were using either broke or that they weren't able to use it and bought a really cheap one because it sounded like a really cheap mic. So frustrating. Yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. It's one of those things that, you know, reflect on the promotion when, like, a lot of people are like, oh, you can hear a single thing there. And it's like, no, for the first two years, you can hear things fine. It just was the last, the last 15 shows, you can hear a single damn thing. And it just colors everyone's depiction of the promotion. Yeah, Absolutely. And then we have Gentlemen's Club backstage celebrating their win. Chuck says that says that tomorrow is going to be the longest night in Rich Swan's life. There was a lot of other things. Was talk about him being really excited to whip Rich Swan. It just was one of those things. A Gentlemen's Club. I'm just gonna say a Gentlemen's Club thing about Rich Swan. Yeah, it's uh, you know it exists. It exists. And then we got to the main event. It was for the Open the United Gate Championships. This was Shima and Air Fox making their defense against the Maraha Sapa team of. Ryo Jimmy Saito and Ginky Horiguchi H A G me. I did that from the top of my head. <laughs> when, when we get to the point where we have to do the real long Mr. QQ name, can't promise that whatsoever. Shima got the win in 20 minutes 51 seconds with a Meteora after a low main pain on Ginky Horiguchi. And boy, like we talked about this last week, I love Ginky Horiguchi in DG USA, and I want I wish he was around a lot more because that guy just owns in this promotion. I really like Horiguchi, and I'm really not that into Saito. Is it just me? I mean, I don't think Saito connects on these shows at all. Not really. Not really. It's it's something where, I mean, a lot of people forget Ryo Saito was a part of the DG6 man at WrestleMania 2006. He was the Open the Dreamgate champion in that match. But it's something that, like, Saito, I don't know if he necessarily comes across well on these shows, and I don't think he has really in the history of promotion when I get into watching some DG UK, I'm gonna be interested to see if he translates better over into like English audiences. Yeah, I I don't know what it is. He just comes across, and it's not his performance. It's just he's one of those guys that is very he connects with a Japanese audience, and that charisma because the American audience doesn't know him as well, it just doesn't translate. Whereas Horiguchi, yeah, I I am stunned now that Horiguchi shows up here. I am stunned that Horiguchi 
is not used more because it's the one show in 2009, the second show in the promotion, and it's this triple shot, and that's it for him. They bring Saito back for the West Coast shows at the start of 2013, but he's with Susumu, not with Horiguchi, and that is crazy to me. And it's just, I really like him here. I also, I love this Shima AR Fox tag team. The the backstabber 450 move they do it, I don't know how it doesn't kill everybody involved. It, there's so many things that look like they could go wrong there, but it I pop for it every time they do it, and I really wish Fox would have been able to figure out something in Japan because that Shima AR Fox tag team, that, that had some legs, and that could have really been something, and it feels like wasted potential on these Dragon USA shows. Yeah, this AR Fox Shima team should be, oh, that could have gone wrong because... Their chemistry is great, but it's like the teetering on disaster thing that we talk about a lot about Shin Skywalker case, that this team really had that energy, and it's such an exciting energy, especially when you know you have someone like Shima, that it's going to look really painful, but it's going to, and it looks really dangerous, and it's going to be okay. And they have AR Fox that, you know, he will crash and burn, and that's part of his story. But this team ruled. I love this AR Fox Shima team. It's one of those things that going back and rewatching the show, this set of shows, I'm really happy. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this tag team, like, yeah, there was all the weirdness of all the vacating. But when this tag team had the belts, they were something special and a whole lot of fun. Yeah, I think the Shun Skywalker comp is great there because that's really what a lot of AR Fox was, was, oh, is he going to die? Is he going to die? Oh, no, he's all, he's all right. He's all right. Guys, it's fine. Everybody clap for him. And for whatever reason, this Shima tag team, I think, just takes that to a whole new level, and perhaps it's just because I feel like when Shima's in the ring, he's in such control and knows exactly what he's doing, and then you you mirror that with Fox, who is out of control in the best way possible, and I just think it really shines through. I will say, for this match, you know, I went three and a half with it. I didn't think it was great, but I like the Shima-Fox tag team a lot. It just didn't, it didn't strike me as anything near must-watch or spreadsheet-worthy or four-stars. I, I mean, maybe it's that how much I enjoy three people in this match that I went four and a quarter on it. Wow. Because I like this match. I love this tag team. Like, as much and as highly touted and deserved Spike Mohicans are, I think that people... I'm going to go try it and seek out that match that they had against Speed Muscle. Cause I'm yeah, I'd interested. really like to see that. Because this might have been, like, one of those things that... Like we've talked about in a recent show about like Western interest was down for a long time and now it's back up somewhat. But this might have been one of those tag teams and one of those things that might have been like lost to history and maybe only have like 10 or 11 matches that actually made tape. But each one of these matches, I find myself more and more liking this tag team. And I thought that on someone that I feel like we were pretty hard on last show in Ardo Ocal, I feel like that him and Bryce Remsburg actually had like an energy that added to this where they were completely charmed by the rubber band attack and they were talking about like, oh, there's a knot in that rubber band. That's going to, you don't want that part to hit you in the face. You hope you, you hope that you're going to be, if you're going to take this, you hope, dear God, you get like the flat part, not the knot. And I thought that was really kind of charming. And the final stretch of like Shima and Fox, like where they go like low main pain into the Meteora and then after like just doing an insane bit of doing the running double knees from Shima into the inside out sent on like the inside out sent on by air fox he must be the only person in the world who's able to pull it off because every time i see him do it he does it like several times in a match like it takes my breath away because it's just like it's very slow motion but it's very beautiful in a way because it's very counter 
motion in a way. And I just love watching it. And, you know, this was just something that maybe it was that it's such a bad taste that like in the gentlemen's club match, I did not rate that match. I gave it an X and just moved on with my day. And then this stuff where like I have two X's on the show that were either squashes or I just did not rate because it was just not good. But I came away with like this match going like maybe like my charm, me being charmed rather with this United Gate team is why I think I came out a lot higher on the show than you did. Yeah, I like this show because other than the Gentleman's Club segment and my frustrations with the Gargano segment, I, I mean, everything on this show was fine. Again, the Generico match didn't connect with me, but it wasn't bad. And then, you know, we both had a match at four stars. I had Tozawa versus Del Sol, then you had the Machine Guns versus Super Smash Brothers match, and then you were higher on the main event than I was. It, it, just, it was a show that never really approached greatness for me but not a bad show by any means i'll take you know 10 shows like this before i sit through another one of those taylor michigan shows right yeah no and that's kind of my big takeaway coming out of this we did have a post-match thing where shima and air fox were celebrating that tomorrow night there'll be a four-way uh match for the freedom gate title where he thought that Air Fox will become champion, and that will be Shima's Dream Gate, Fox's Freedom Gate, and together they will be the United Gate champions. Whereas they started to say that uh, Callahan came out, he said he'll beat up Shima tomorrow, and he'll be a stepping stone. And then Fox says, if you want to go through him to become a champion, you have to go through me, Air Fox. Sammy left. Shima said he didn't understand a single thing, and then went straight back to talking about it that they will become triple champions together. And that's and then they had Air Fox take us home. So more tr- more charming Shima stuff of him deciding to be like, I don't care. You know, I was in the middle of saying something that I really liked here, Sammy, and I don't care what you have to say, and I don't understand you. I'm going to go back to saying what I was saying. I got to say, I'm pumped to watch their singles match next week. Do you, do you want me to run down this Freedom Fight 2012 card real quick? Yeah, we're already at the end of 2012. Next week, we're also going to talk about like our top matches from this year in Dragon Gate USA. 2012 has felt like it's flown by after going through 2011's forever shows. Yeah, next week is going to be a loaded show. It is, we're obviously going to have a Freedom Fight review. We're going to be talking about the the demise of Jim Cornette and Ring of Honor. We'll go through our top matches of Dragon Gate USA, and we'll close out the, the show with one, a Gabe Sapolsky letter that he wrote in an email, and then two, the final Evolve show of 2012, so we can hit the ground running in 2013. So a lot to look forward to next week. And the card from the NYWC Sportatorium in Deer Park, New York, it is John Davis versus Ata, The Scene versus Tony Nese and fucking Papadon. Eric Cannon versus ACH, Fire Ant and Jigsaw versus the Super Smash Brothers, a no DQ match between Ch- Chuck Taylor and Rich Swan, Shima versus Sammy Callahan, El Generico and Samurai Del Sol versus Genki Horiguchi and Ryo Saito. In a four way elimination match, Johnny Gargano defends the Open the Freedom Gate title against his three toughest challengers of the year, Akira Tozawa, Ricochet, and A.R. Fox. Boy, that show is really loaded. <laughs> like God, the, like the back the... half of that show, the the everything from Fire Ant and Jigsaw versus the Smash Brothers on. I am really excited to watch, and this is a show that I had on DVD. So I I've seen the show a few times now, but it has been years, and I mean that with a plural, since I have watched anything on this show. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it, and we'll get to we'll get to replay one of our favorite conversations, case, and that is. Should Akira Tozawa should have won the title here. Oh, you're oh my god, my my favorite sliding glass doors moment that we've been we've been discussing because I really think as time goes on, 
it was a mistake to not have this man with the Freedom Gate belt. I I, I mean, I'm just going to make a uh, just a universal decision right here for our listeners. The number one cardinal sin of this promotion is that Kirtizawa has never dreamed gate or Freedom Gate champion. Well, he should have been Dream Gate champion too, but he should have been Freedom Gate champion at many times, and they had the opportunity that did not belt him up. And that's something that if I ever sit down with Gabe Sapolsky, one of my first questions is, why did you not strap up Akira Tozawa? Yeah, I think I got some other questions for Gabe before I get to that, but that's on the list. I, I mean, that's number one for me, and that I mean that should surprise no one. That that's why I care most <laughs> of all, sitting down with one of the, the most important indie booker of the last twenty years. The mo- what Brett Lauderdale's more important? No, Gabe Sapolsky's the most important indie booker of the last twenty years. Put some respect on his name. I mean, I I I have been charmed lately by Paradigm Pro Wrestling. To be fair, it's no, not, no. Not, I don't want I don't want to hear this game changer crew, these yarders. I don't want to hear DJ Hyde, Zandig, even Super Dragon. It's Gabe. Gabe, Gabe is uh, you know for all of his faults, he's he's produced a lot of greatness. And for as much as I make fun of him, because he deserves it, because he deserves it, I sometimes have to thank him. That is fair. That is fair. Well, that I think that's going to do it for this week. We have a loaded show next week, and I'm going to be really stoked to watch this Freedom Fight show. Okay, so anything else you want to touch on before we get out of here? Anything we forgot? No, we're going to close out 2012 next week. I'm looking forward to it. Me too, me too. And then, then we're down to one full year and then four weird shows. We're almost through this. Like, and I know I have to say that a lot, but it does kind of like – Talking about Pinky leaving really has kind of cemented that in my head. Yeah, it's really weird that it did, it did that for me, too. It really hit me when I realized this was his last show. And especially because there's two shows in 2013 that I'm unfamiliar with. But I by 2013... The, the middle half, I'm watching this promotion in real time. I You know, I remember watching... Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013. We'll talk about it then, but that was my first Dragon Gate USA show I watched live. So I'm ex- I mean, I, I've loved doing this. I've loved talking to you every week of during the pandemic about Dragon Gate USA, but I am really excited about finishing this up just because what's coming next, all, all of the shows from here on out are really weird. And they're just, I'm looking forward to, to revisiting them. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to to it too. I am ready to start saying farewell to some of these places that they visited. I do want to, and I'll try to do this each week. There will now be only 13 more DGUSA shows before we're done. The countdown is now to 13. Feels Wild. good. Feels good. Feel it does feel good. But that's going to do it for this episode of Open the Voice Gate Rewind and Rewatch. You could follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. You could follow Case on Twitter. Uh, underscoring your case and you can follow me on twitter at fujiheya but for case i'm mike we'll catch you next time as we are as we're at show 13 of our countdown to the end of dgusa as we finish 2012 with freedom fight 2012 take care everyone